Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is our scripture reading tonight. Who would be willing to read for us? Birthday girl. Nice and loud. That's a great idea. Whitney Vance, since you're 21 years old today, we would love for you to read for us uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Go right ahead. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves woolen cloths. Okay, y'all, the study that we've been doing this summer has been on the topic of the divine story. I'm trying to pitch to you that one of the ways in which we oftentimes struggle with the Bible is the information in the Bible seems very remote to us. You know what I mean by that? Uh, it's like here's a lot of information and there are these weird facts from people from a long time ago, but I honestly really don't know how that information makes contact with me. You know what I mean by that? In other words, how does it really become something meaningful to me? Well, I'm trying to pitch to you that one of the best ways to do that is by realizing that the Bible is a story. It's actually the story. It's the story of history and the story of everything that we understand to be reality. Um, We looked at the second RUF at this question of who the main characters are, and we talked about man, this sort of crown of God's creation, as being one who has inherent dignity uh, in him. Last week, we found out what this story was going to be about, that we found out it was a love story. Uh, Again, not some sort of smarmy, uh, romantic uh, love story, Uh, uh, that we see sort of on television, even though sometimes those things are not all that smarmy. Uh, Ginger and I last night got to watch, um, what did we watch? When in Rome. Rome. Anybody see this? Kristen Bell and um, some what's-his-face dude. Okay, it's about as as chick-flickish as it could possibly get. Uh, No question about this. But I'll say this, you know, the idea is, is, is sound. Here's somebody who looks and wants to find love and begins to sort of discover it in the weirdest of ways. You know, maybe magic can be something that brings about real love. And what does she find? She doesn't want love to be established by some sort of manipulation. She wants to be something that was real. Well, look, y'all, the echoes of that come from what the Scripture says, that we were created to be meaningfully connected to people, to each other, and first and foremost, to our God. That's how we were created to be. What I want to look at tonight, though, is this simple point. That if you're going to have a protagonist in a good story, namely man or God, you need to have an antagonist. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find out what every good story has, which is this hanging question over the story. Will this story be a tragedy or will it be a story with a happy ending? How, how, will this thing, how will this thing go? Because in Genesis chapter 3, we find that there's a threat that it will actually not be. Um, and so that the lesson of tonight, I'll give you the lesson from the beginning here. The lesson is simply this. There are going to be times in your life where life feels like it's a tragedy. But according to the Bible, you mustn't believe it. 
Because it's not true. It's not true about what's at the heart of the universe. But I don't want to belittle the fact that it oftentimes feels like it does. Um, this is reaching way back into my own pop culture uh, uh, repertoire or history here. Uh, but back in the 1980s, the uh, drummer for the Eagles, a guy by the name of Don Henley, hope at least some of you know who uh, uh, Don Henley is or are familiar with that name, recorded a song by uh, Bruce Hornsby. Bruce Hornsby uh, was a guy who was discovered by Huey Lewis, of all people, of Huey Lewis and the News, and uh, made a lot of, um, uh, excuse me, uh, made a lot of um, uh, uh, money off of uh, uh, That's Just the Way It Is, uh, which I think got sampled by some rapper in the early 2000s or something. Anyway, that's my little musical path there. But Hornsby wrote this song for Don Henley to record called The End of the Innocence. And it's a great sort of musical, lyrical adaptation of what it feels like when life sort of feels like a tragedy. This is the lyric to it. And I, I thought it was good, and so I'll read it to you here. See what you think. He says, Remember when the days were long and rolled beneath a deep blue sky? Didn't have a care in the world with mommy and daddy standing by. But happily ever after fails. And we've been poisoned by these fairy tales. The lawyer dwells on small details since daddy had to fly. In other words, mom and dad divorce. And all of a sudden, the little fairy tales that we believe when we were little start to crumble underneath us. It often feels that way, doesn't it? But he says, but I know a place where we can go that's still untouched by men. We'll sit and watch the clouds roll by and the tall grass waving in the wind. You can lay your head back on the ground and let your hair fall all around me. Offer up your best defense, but this is the end. This is the end of your innocence. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, but now those skies are threatening. They're beating plowshares into swords for this tired old man that we've elected king. At that time, Hornsby was talking about Ronald Reagan, uh, the tired old man that we elected king. Armchair warriors often failed, and since we've been poisoned by these fairy tales, the lawyers clean up all details since daddy had to lie. In other words, is this time that you come where you believe in the goodness of man, that there'll be political solutions for life, and all of a sudden those fail you as well. But again, I know a place where we can go to wash away this sin. We'll sit and watch the clouds roll by and the tall grass waves in the wind. Just lay your head back on the ground and let your hair spill all around me. Offer up your best defense, but this is the end. This is the end of the innocence. Here's the last one. There's a great line. But who knows how long this will last. Now we've come so far, so fast. But somewhere back there in the dust, that same small town in each of us. I need to remember this. So baby, give me just one kiss and let me take a long last look before we say goodbye. And he goes through and repeats the chorus about this. Look, how old do you have to be before you suddenly discover that life, life can be a sad place? There are times in which that sadness is distant to you. In other words, you get a chance to sort of be exposed to the, the evil that this world can conjure up. And I'll be honest with you, it can bring you down. There are times in which that evil is not remote to you, but actually very close to you. There are friends of yours that go through awful kinds of struggles. Maybe even you experience heartbreaking, crushing loss in life. There are other times in which the crushing sort of pain can come, within, come from within our own hearts or our own heads. And we don't even know why we're as down as we are. We don't understand why life looks as dark as we are. But how old are you when you suddenly realize that, Dad, gummit, life is sad 
And it's not making a whole lot of sense right now. And it's not working for me very uh, good. Um, in the first of, uh, uh, excuse me, the, in the first of uh, C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that C.S. Lewis actually wrote a, a trilogy of science fiction, uh, uh, out of the silent planet. Paralandra and um, that hideous strength. It's a wonderful uh, sort of uh, 19, circa 1950s uh, science fiction if you're into that sort of thing. Um, but the hero of the book is a character called Ransom. Again, one of uh, C.S. Lewis's not so thinly veiled, uh, 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 pretty thinly veiled, uh, um, what do you call it, analogies that he's using. But the head character is taken to the planet of Mars, right? Uh, and he gets a chance to see the earth uh, from the point of view of those who have not fallen, who have not actually had the, the, the darkness of sin come across him. But what he finds is that that planet is tormented by one whom Lewis refers to as the bent one. And what he says is, is he's saying that there is someone behind the radical evil of the universe in other words, it's not just happening, but behind the radical evil, Christianity's explanation for it is that there is a, how can I put this, a malevolent personality. There's a person behind this. Um, to be honest with you, the 20th century is sort of the easiest of apologetics behind this sort of idea that you're naive if you think that we can have the 20th century and evil to be something that's just random. At the beginning of the 1900s, people were very positive about human beings' uh, potential. We finally shucked off this ancient view of God. We've decided that there is no transcendent world. We're going to live as life exists here under the sun. And what happens? We have the bloodiest, uh, most brutal, most inhumane centuries that we know of human history being recorded. Right? The Bible's explanation of that is, is behind it all is a personality. A personality that is bent on destruction. And C.S. Lewis calls them a bent one. That it's crooked. It's out of place. That things as you see them, this is the big point, are not the way they're supposed to be. Now look, this is a, you can give yourself a little bit of life vertigo if you really think through this. And I kind of want to give you just a little bit of it, if you will, tonight. What if the world you think is, is not what it, what, what it looks like it is? What if the way in which you see things is not what life really is? Um, I want to plant that little bit of insecurity in you long enough to ask the question that maybe the world isn't <laughs> what I think that it is. Maybe the explanations that I've sort of plastered on top of it aren't really what there are. And maybe I'm deceived. Now, by the way, uh, deception is one of those very weird things, especially when it's self-deception. You ever thought about this? Um, if you were being deceived, would you know it? Uh, no, because <laughs> the definition of being deceived is that you don't realize that you're being deceived. But the Bible, interestingly enough, characterizes our sin as just that. When Jesus describes the devil, he says the devil is the father of what? Lies. The devil is the father of lies. Now, why did he choose lies? I don't know, if I was going to call the devil something, I'd say he's the father of evil. Or maybe he's the father of lust or murder or something like that. Why did he pick lies? Unless the devil's number one power is to deceive, to trick you into making you think that the world is something that it's not. And you get this in the opening chapters of seeing his personality in Genesis chapter 3. 
And even just the little section that Whitney read for us, you see the amazing ability of the devil to produce lies. There are three quick lies that I want to race through, and then we'll do some quick application through it. Okay? Look, the first thing that Satan does is, is he begins by exaggerating God's law. Lie number one is to exaggerate God's law. Notice what he says. He goes to Eve and he says, you know what, look, did God really say, we've been talking to the animals back here, and we're all, we're all discussing among ourselves, we heard that he said that you couldn't eat of any tree in this garden. <laughs> the implication, of course, is, you know, we're not trying to tell you your business here, Eve, but uh, <laughs> seems like he's fairly narrow-minded. I mean, there's an awful lot of nice trees here, but we heard that he told you you couldn't eat of any tree. What's he trying to do? He's trying to plant a little bit of a doubt in Eve's mind that God's command to stay away from, by the way, one tree, was not actually something that was going to be a blessing for her. But it really was just him trying to restrict her, right? You know, in other words, he comes in and begins to sort of suggest that, that, that God's law is oppressive, right? And, and he knows that if all of a sudden she, he, she can think, you know what, you're right, that is kind of uh, strident of him. That it's one small step for her resenting him for that law. Look, in the garden, God is saying this, the universe is mine. And because it's mine, it only works by my design and rules. In other words, I have designed it, I have designed this garden, this place for you to function for your fulfillment. <laughs> A place where you actually will flourish. The garden initially was, was something like what water is to a fish. <laughs> Uh, You put the water, put the fish in the water, and he suddenly says, ah, this is what I was created for. And he swims. He experiences the depths that he was created to know. That's what the garden was for these people. But Satan wants to look and say to to her, "Um, I I just think God actually doesn't have your best intention at heart. Now, in my opinion, she immediately kind of buys into this, doesn't she? Because she looks up and she says to herself, well, no, that's not what God said. What he said was is that uh, we can't eat of this certain tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we're not allowed to eat from that tree, and neither shall we, neither are we allowed to touch it. Now, pay attention to your Bible reading here. When you go back to Genesis 2, did God say anything about touching that tree? He didn't, did he? Look, in other words, what you have in this opening response that Eve gives to uh, uh, Satan is an admission that she's already blown it. She's already blown it because instead of looking at Satan and saying, you know what, thus saith the Lord, instead of responding to the devil with the word of God, she looks and basically says, you know what, he did say, no, really, it's just this one tree, but you know, we can't even touch it either. It does. In, in chapter 2, not in chapter 3, but chapter 2, when he gives the command, he looks and only says anything about touching it. But she all of a sudden adds this little command. Where does that come from, right? So Eve is showing that she already bought it. She already bought into it. She already looked and said, said God's oppressive. In other words, she looks and says that basically God is trying to keep me down. Let me ask you a question. How are you dealing with God's law right now? Look, you know, we tend to look at the things that God sort of gives to us as our design, as sort of our, as, as His law, as the kind of like the downer part of the Bible study. Oh, okay. 
here's the stuff that we're going to do. What am I doing wrong? You know, lay it on me. I know this because of the famous question that we oftentimes get asked. Oftentimes it's a very sincere question. Les, I'm dating someone. We're very close. We have a lot of uh, wonderful things going on between the two of us. But we're just sort of struggling. It's always code word for, you know, we're, <laughs> we're having sex or something very close to it or something like unto it. And they're just like, ah, I mean, like, what's your opinion on, uh, you know, uh, kissing? You know, in other words, you're just kind of trying to feel out the, the deal here. Well, you know, what about such and such? The old question of how far is too far? Beware of those kinds of questions. Why? Because it assumes that the fact that God would set any sort of boundaries for us at all, sexually speaking, is something that's kind of a bother. And so the old question of how far is too far is sort of basically saying, I want you to get me like as close as I can conceivably get up to it to where I don't have to feel bad about it afterwards. So what is that exactly? <laughs> Hoping for a very liberally minded youth pastor, right, that'll look and say, don't worry about it. Um, but look, it betrays something in us that actually thinks that God doesn't have our best interest at heart. Look, y'all, you are created to be dominated by God so much so that anything that you do outside of that domination leads to your own dysfunction and your own destruction. Um, why is my life so screwed up? <laughs> because I've been going against the grain of reality. I've been going against the way in which I've been trying to function as a fish, in, 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 not in water, but in a realm that was never intended for me. Okay, second lie. The first lie is about God's law. The second lie is about God's character. Satan looks at Eve and is like, you will not surely die. Eve, come on. God is trying to keep you out of the God club. He knows that the second that you eat this, he's going to be, you're going to be like him. He's holding things from you. God is being withholding from you, Eve. That's the problem, you know? Truth is, you could be just like God if you wanted to. Satan comes and what does he do? He casts God in this sadistic light and says that God actually, when it comes to all the good things that he can have for him, is holding something back. Here's the question in the second lie. Does God intend good for you? Does he have your best interest at heart? Is it or is it not God's intention to make you perfectly happy? You you, you can't read the book of Revelation and any of the predictions about our life eternal and not picture those as being people who are blissfully happy. And I realize that for those of you that may be outside of Christianity tonight, who are sort of looking at Christianity from the outside in, which is great. This is where you need to be, quite honestly. (laughs) It's oftentimes easy to look at that and say, well, you know, people who are sort of religious that way might think that. But we're actually saying much more than that. We're not just saying that it's kind of a place where religious people might want to go. We're saying that it's the place for human flourishing. That that it's where you can be what you were created to be. Look, y'all, in the end, sin is a serious thing. And when God says to stay away from it, he might actually have your best intentions at heart. Um, Reminds me of my favorite old illustration about the way in which the deception kind of works. Um, And it's an illustration about how the Eskimos hunt wolves. Have I done this lately? I usually do this every two or three years in RUF. Um, The Eskimos in in the olden days used to hunt wolves, or so I've heard and read, 
um, by taking a very, very sharp dagger, small dagger or something. It's got very, very sharp edges on it. And what they would do, since it's a very frozen climate, is that they would take blood from some kind of animal that they had eaten or whatever else, and they would freeze the blood on the blade. And then once it was frozen, they would take it and dip it back in some more blood and freeze that until finally they had a nice sort of round sort of coating around the blade um, uh, coated with frozen blood. And they would take that dagger and stick it inside the ice and wait for the wolves to come when they smelled the blood. And of course what would happen is, is the wolves would begin to lick at the blood to begin to melt it. And of course, over time, as the blood as the blood began to melt in the wolves' mouth, they become more and more ravenous for the blood that's on there. Until as it goes, the wolf cannot tell the difference between the blood that it's licking off of the blade and the blood that it's drinking from its own tongue. And there the wolf bleeds to death, hanging over this knife. Now look, I don't care who you are, that's a cool illustration, right? If for nothing else, because you're like, you just kind of want to see it, you know? <laughs> Just to watch a a wolf bleed to death, it's just kind of cool. We'll all think about it for the rest of the night. (laughs) But look, y'all, what if there is a ravenousness to the idea that God does not have my best interest at heart? So that when we dive into something that we think will be good for us, that it actually has my destruction at its heart. Look, y'all, we have to change the way in which we view God's instructions for us. Because as long as we look at it as being something that is there for my restraining, for my um, sort of uh, to create coldness in my own heart, we will never see it as something that's life-giving and we'll never have any victory in terms of wanting to obey it. God's, Satan tries to look and say, sin is alluring. Sin is something that will be good for you when it's absolutely false. And what it does is it has our worst interests at heart, which leads me to the third sort of lie. Then Satan finally just says it straight up. He goes, you are not going to die. <laughs> You're not going to die. That's this is the third and sort of outright lie. Um, in other words, he looks and says, what you think is going to happen is not going to happen. That's not what's at the heart of all this. But the truth of, this, the truth of it is, is that most of us live under this impression that sort of a future spiritual death is so removed from our experience that it just doesn't feel real. Um, and, and for a lot of us, whenever you heard the sort of, we, we like to call them fundamentalists, but we heard people talk about the burning fires of hell, fire and brimstone when we were growing up, we wrote those people off, right? And here's the deal. You may still be struggling with whether or not you believe in that or not. Uh, I think you ought to search the scriptures and look for the truth about that whole topic. But what I feel like I've I've discovered at the ripe old age of 42 is that the hell that God predicts for the people who have determined that they will reject God doesn't begin at your death. It actually starts from the moment that you are, to to use the term, hell bent on ignoring God's law. Look, y'all, the truth is, is that when it really comes down to sin, I'm not really sure that we get away with anything. I I talked about going against the grain of reality. You need to expect that when you turn that block of wood around and go against the grain, the splinters that you do to your life will hurt. I had a conversation with a, a, a campus minister friend of mine years ago. He actually doesn't work for RUF anymore. He's a a pastor of a church. 
And he was relating to me a conversation that he had with his uh, fiance uh, prior to uh, his um, wedding. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments, a couple months before their wedding, where they're up kind of late one night and it's time to sort of, um, you know, sort of confess all. <laughs> and um, at one point during the conversation, his wife uh, apparently had, um, uh, you know, not had any kind of sexual, real sexual experiences prior to her marriage with my friend. Uh, my friend had had lots of sexual experiences before then. And at one point in their conversation late into the night, she kind of looks over at him and she says, well, I mean, I know for our wedding, you know, uh, she looks, she goes, I mean, I'm, I'm your first, right? Um, my friend talks about the, <laughs> the three or four hours that he spent so loaded down with regret as he had to confess to someone sort of what his... Um, what was loaded up in the U-Haul of baggage that he was dragging into their marriage was for and how that mountain of regret broke his heart and his wife's heart. Now here's the thing. <laughs> Is he forgiven? Absolutely. Is he a spotless you know, you know, a child of God and looked at with the absolute robes of Jesus' righteousness? Absolutely. Does he expect full, you know, glorious enjoyment of God's truth in heaven? No question. But it didn't take away from the fact that sin has present consequences. Present consequences. Things that we tend to tell ourselves that we can just sort of gloss past and say, well, I know God's going to forgive me. Okay, realize what you're saying. It very well may be true, but why would you continue to gulp down the poison? <laughs> uh, I had a friend of mine who was relating a story about sharing uh, uh, about Christianity with a, a, a person who was not a Christian. And at one point the person looked at him and said, <clears throat> let me ask you a question. If I sort of <clears throat> buy into your whole Christian thing, does that mean that I've got to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? And my friend stopped for a second and he didn't know what to say. It's kind of a trick question if you really think about it. In order for me to become a Christian, do I have to stop sleeping with my girlfriend? Well, if he said yes, he made it sound like you've got to jump through a hoop in order to become a Christian, which is not true. Jesus takes people as they are, right? Grace alone by faith alone we're very anxious to present. But at the same time, he also knew that there really is something about being uh, with Jesus that implies that we do the kinds of things that he tells us to do. And we like those kinds of things that he tells us to do. And so he looked at him and he said, you know, the fact that you're asking that question means, means that we missed something along the way. Because what you're saying is, is okay, if I can, can I do this Jesus thing and still continue to destroy myself? Why would you ask that? <laughs> Why would anyone be bent on that? Look, y'all, I want to be really, really careful here. Because I know for a lot of us, myself included... Um, and I'm not going to come out here and, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to do any kind of like emotional streaking here in front of all of you and tell you any of my own personal um, U-Haul worth of baggage. I'm not trying to lay something on us that's not there. I simply want to <laughs> let you hear from someone twice as old as you are that, yes, God offers full and free and absolute forgiveness that can make you spotless and clean, but there are hurts that I really wish I didn't have to face and can themselves be part of the equation of believing the gospel, good news. 
And what Satan's main attempt to do to you, to do to your story, is to make you have a sad ending, not a happy ending. And his instructions about the kinds of things that we do with our bodies, the kinds of things that we do with our genitals, about the kinds of things that we put into our bodies. We are so shocked at this campus that God would actually restrict my alcohol consumption. It's almost as if our jaws drop open. You're not one of those people, are you, Les? You're going to start talking about that. Well, God forbid that God should ever say anything about the way in which I behave. We are shocked that there might actually be a time in which I'd look and say, you know what, I can't watch that movie. And I'm not a fundamentalist if I have to get up and leave it. I'm not a fundamentalist if I look and go, I can't be here. Because <laughs> this is a place that's bad for me. And we all, oh, you know, now you're getting all legalistic on us here, Les. You're going to start laying down the rules. Really? What if God really has our best interest at heart? And what if my objections to the contrary are the fact that I'm believing that God does not have my best interest at heart? Is it possible that it affects the gospel? Look, y'all, Adam and Eve, once their eyes are opened, they go off and they try to dress themselves. When I was a kid, I used to have the little um, children's storybook Bible. Do you remember this thing? It was blue on the outside and had these great sort of drawings on the inside. It's really funny that in the picture of Adam and Eve after they've sinned and they made leaf coverings for themselves, do you remember the photograph of Adam and Eve? Um, you know, Eve has this lovely little off-the-shoulder number that kind of covers here, and it's a little dress kind of deal, and Adam has this nice little pants suit made of leaves for him. That's hilarious to me. Um, how ridiculous must these people have looked when they tried to make themselves clothing uh, with leaves? You know, I'm sure there was this, there was a lot of trying to cover, you know, this, hide. In other words, there's always this attempt whenever we are exposed as being those who are shamed to do really silly things to cover ourselves. You want to understand your life? What have you been doing to cover yourself? You can figure out who you are by looking and saying, how have I tried to deal with this deep-seated inadequacy, this shame for knowing that I had been involved in all kinds of stuff that God told me I shouldn't, but I did it anyway because I thought that Satan had a better plan for my life than God did. What are you doing to cover those things? Because what happens is God comes down and looks and says, I will clothe you with animal skins. And isn't it interesting that in order to get those animal skins, an animal had to die. And suddenly, from the very beginning of the gospel, we'll talk more about this next week, we get a glimmer of how God is going to deal with our ultimate nakedness. I was talking about this last week. Did we talk about this last week during the Q&A session? Each one of the gospel writers records that Jesus was crucified naked. Why do they do that? What a weird detail. Do we really need to hear that? Really? Do we have to have that in the Bible? Unless Jesus is up there bearing our shame, that he's up there on the cross saying, this is not just to sort of make us go, oh, how awful. <clears throat> but it's rather there to say, I'm bearing the things that you're terrified to admit about yourself and other people. And because I'm bearing it, I'm going to take it away. And mean that now, no matter what you've done, or no matter where you've been, or no matter how much you regret, you're going to have to spill to your future spouse? I actually covered that. And I took away the sting from it all. And that means that you can look with confidence at your spouse and say, yes, this is what I regret and this is what I've done. But this is what Jesus has made me and is making me to be. 
And doggone it, I'm changing. Things are changing for me. Look, y'all, there is hope that exists here. We're going to talk a whole lot more about it next week. But I simply want to leave you with this thought. There are going to be times in which you find yourself, some of you may be there right now, when the world looks awfully dark. And it looks as if there's not a whole lot that you can see through that's going on with you right now. Um, Is life a tragedy or is it a story with a happy ending? Because even though Genesis chapter 3 is true, and it oftentimes feels like it, it's not true. There is a happy ending. And we're coming to that next week. You see, that's our little sort of trailer to put in there to bring them all back anxious next week for the rest of the discussion. Um, This is a great quote uh, by a guy named um, uh, uh, Stafford Wright um, about Christians who ask the question, why? Bear with me for a second. It's a little bit long, but it's worth hearing. He said, what is this driving force that compels our minds to turn again and again to our great problems in life? Is it no more than idle curiosity? Or is it part of our inheritance as those who are made in God's image so that we see that the universe has wholeness and that it must make sense if only we could find what sense it is? The Christian answer is that the universe does make sense. There is a plan and a purpose that has its center and its climax in Christ. We as Christians have been predestinated to be an integral part of that plan. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God afore prepared for those that we should walk in them. But, listen to this, not even to Christians has it been given to comprehend the plan. Not even a Christian can explain how everything comes into his life and takes its place in the plan. But, nonetheless, all the time trying to catch a glimpse of a certain wholeness that will link together all his individual experiences. The Christian attitude is then one of faith and confidence. The Christian says, I know that all these things must play their part in God's total plan. I know I long to to see what the plan is and to see it as a whole, and I shall go on trying to see it. But, in the meantime, I will live my life one day at a time, Believing that in the common round of life I am doing the will of God, I will be content with what God gives me and take my life from the hand of God. That's the way in which a Christian faces suffering and the pain of life.